Thanks to Hired, today's Does Not Compute sponsor. Hired is one of the best ways for designers and developers to find new jobs. Here's how it works. You sign up for Hired, and they make your information available to their partner companies who are looking for new talent. You don't pay anything, and there aren't any obligations, and the hiring companies are all pre-screened. They've got everything from tiny startups to huge public companies, and there are full-time as well as contract positions available in tons of incredible cities. You just specify what kind of job you're looking for, what you do, and where you're willing to work. After that, you'll get up to five job offers every week, all with salary and equity up front. Once you've interviewed and found a good fit, Hired then pays you $2,000 to say thanks for using them. They've got a special offer for listeners of Does Not Compute, though. If you sign up at Hired.com slash Does Not Compute and get a job through them, they'll give you a $4,000 thank you bonus instead. You don't have anything to lose, and you might just find an amazing new job. So make sure to sign up at Hired.com slash Does Not Compute. Sean, we have a listener question. It's from uh, Jack Reed in the spec Slack. What does Jack Reed want to know? He was asking about a good introduction for writing tests, specifically for JavaScript. Um, so he kind of has an idea of what some of the tools are, but never anything explaining why, how, when somebody should write tests and run them. Um, so I, I kind of answered this in the spec Slack a little bit, but I thought it would be great to cover here as well. So first of all, I think... Why is it makes your code way better. And not only that, it actually makes your job easier. And that sounds kind of weird at first. I know that's something that didn't make sense to me for a really long time because it sounds like, oh, I'm writing tests in addition to the code now. That's obviously more work. But it turns out that that's actually not how it works. Um, it really does make life easier for you when you are able to get tests written and good tests because that way, especially for future changes down the road, you don't need to worry as much. You can just change stuff and then the tests will be broken. You fix the tests and then you're good to go. Like you, you don't need to worry as much when you make changes. Also, that includes upgrading dependencies. If you upgrade a dependency but you have good tests in place, you don't need to worry about that. You, you just know that everything is still functioning as expected. So that's a major help for me for in terms of peace of mind. Yeah, I, I kind of had the same feelings for a long time. You know, when I was thinking about testing, I was like, why would I do this? It, it seems like I'm doing twice the work, right? Um, but a lot of the points that you talked about, you know, being able to make changes elsewhere and knowing if you're introducing bugs into your system is huge, especially if you've been working on a project for a while. You know, as things get bigger and bigger, it's hard to keep everything in mind all the time, right? So when you have tests, it's kind of like a fail-safe there, like a safety net for you. Um, so if you do introduce a bug, you'll instantly know. But not only that, you will you will automatically know where that bug is happening as well. So you can uh, track it down a lot easier. The thing I like most about writing tests is that, for me, they serve as a spec for what I'm doing. So when I run away write tests, I like to outline what this thing does and what it doesn't do, more importantly. So that way, as I'm working, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know what features it should have and what features it shouldn't have. And I find that in the past, a lot of the time that I end up wasting is in kind of running in circles, thinking to myself, oh, wait, what was I doing again? What is this, what is this, you know, this feature supposed to do again? And I would have to go back to a designer and ask, or I'd have to go back to maybe a scope of work and look at that. Um, but having the test written beforehand like that, it, it has the rules for you right there. 
Yeah, for sure. One of the projects that I just released, actually, I, I did in a test-driven development kind of style. So I would actually write tests first and then get those tests to pass by writing code. And that was a super interesting experience for me because it kind of broke things down and made it a lot more digestible as a developer. Like I could just look at it and know, okay, this is what I need to get done because these are the tests that are written. And then when I finished those tests, I would be like, okay, well, I guess the next feature is feature Y. So I'll write tests for that and then build that out. And it actually made it go really quickly. I, I wrote a bunch of tests and then I realized, oh, wow, I'm actually kind of done already because <laughs> this all the tests are written and I just wrote code to those tests and it's finished. It's ready to go. Right. And that, that helps other developers out too. Um, I think I mentioned in one of the previous episodes, I had to do a call with um, a company that we'll be working with and they basically wanted to know how long I thought it would take to do something. And they gave me access to their code and I cloned it down. And the first place I went was the tests. And by looking through the tests, I was able to see what had already been implemented, uh, you know, what features the application already had. I didn't have to kind of go spelunking through a request through the, through their Rails controllers and stuff like that. I could just look at the test and see exactly what uh, features it had. It saved me so much time. Yep. I think that's a pretty good covering of why you should write tests. And then as for how, I guess there's a lot of options. The question specifically was about JavaScript. So personally, I really like using Jasmine and then Karma. Um, Jasmine is the act- where you actually write the tests. It allows you to describe things and use it does something. That, that sort of BDD style of testing. And it also provides a nice assertion library as well as spies and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's pretty full featured. It's basically everything in one package. And then I actually use Karma hooked into Gulp in order to run all the tests. And so though I had it set up in some projects I've done recently is that locally I'll have a watcher running and anytime JavaScript changes, it'll you know do any compilation stuff it needs to, and then run the tests in Phantom. But then when I push to CI, it'll actually run those same tests against Sauce Labs, and Karma supports that built in. So that what's really cool is that then I'm actually getting tests on real browsers when I push to CI, which is really kind of fantastic. It's it's a bit of a game changer. So you you pretty much just have that whole setup automated. Then you have it set up when you when you save a file, it runs everything. When you push up to the branch, it runs everything. That sounds pretty sweet. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just a combination of Karma, Travis CI, and in this case, Sauce Labs. Very cool. Now, I, you know, I've looked into testing JS a little bit. I have a lot more experience in, in testing Rails and Ruby, but I've definitely heard of spies before uh, as it comes to Jasmine. Uh, but can you break that down for me really quick? Sure. So spies basically just make it easier to see what things are doing to your functions. That's that's a pretty generic explanation, but essentially you can tell Jasmine to spy on a given function and then you can assert whether or not a function was called and what that function was called with. So it basically lets you see if you're calling other functions with the correct parameters. Oh, okay, that, that makes a lot more sense. So I guess it's kind of similar to using the Chrome debugger where you can pause on exceptions and you can go back and look at what functions were called and what arguments they were given. Yeah, sort of like that, except for testing. It's it's a similar idea, though. Um, and there's other ways to do that without spies, in certain cases at least, but the spies in Jasmine make it really clean and easy to do it, so it's pretty neat. Have you had to mess with mocking and stubbing at all yet? I've never had to do too much of that with front-end testing, but I have for Python stuff, actually. So mocks and stubs for me are always the most difficult piece in writing tests. Um, anytime I have to deal with, you know, 
uh, handling an API request or, you know, not worry. I don't obviously don't want to worry about testing Stripe's code because Stripe, for example, is already tested. Um, and I guess for me, I've always had the, the most amount of trouble in writing tests around those. Sure. And so for some things, in the case of Ruby code specifically, there are tools like VCR that make it so you don't have to actually send real requests off to a service like Stripe. For anybody who doesn't know, VCR actually will send a real request, will record the response data and save that in YAML format. So then next time, instead of sending the actual request, it'll just capture it and then send the fake response generated from the YAML, which is very, very cool in a lot of situations. Right. And I think you could also have it uh, expire as well. So that way you can make sure you're getting uh, updated YAML in case maybe an API changes or something. Yep, definitely. So another way to kind of handle an easy, a simple mock would be to just define the service. Let's say you had for example, a notification service is one that I actually just mocked recently. I just made a class called mock notification service and then instantiated that instead of the real notification service, obviously. And then in the method that gets called, let's call it notify. Instead of actually sending off a notification, it would just add to an instance variable called maybe calls. And it would just push something onto an array with the arguments that were passed to it. So that way, then you can check my mock notification class dot calls and see whether or not it was called with different things. So that's kind of like a poor man's spy in a way. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense, actually. So now we come to the when. I don't know if Jack Reed meant this as in when do you actually find time to write tests or when in the process do you write tests? Uh, but I think those are both pretty important questions and probably the hardest of the three, really. For me personally, at my previous jobs, there's typically been not very much time available for testing. At ImageX, though, it's been really strongly encouraged and or required, um, and time is allotted for it. So that's kind of made a big difference there. But one thing for me, I, I have to say that even if you just have a tiny bit of time to squeeze tests in, it's totally worth it because at least it'll help a little bit, first of all. And then it'll also help make you faster at writing them next time. So you'll be able to get a little bit more done each project. That way you're forcing yourself to improve even when you can't write a full-on test suite that gets 100% coverage, you know? Right. And if you're if you're confused at maybe where to start writing tests, you can, I mean, you definitely want to test things that you're not confident about. So I work for a consulting company, right? And we, you know, it's kind of hard to pitch to a client, oh, we're going to bill you X amount of extra time so that we can write tests for this stuff because they don't have any concept of that. So what I have ended up doing is is if if I feel not very confident about a feature that I've implemented, I'll try to write tests for that. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. And another one I would really recommend is anywhere where you're dealing with money would be a great place to write tests if you haven't already. Yeah, anything dealing with money, anything dealing with people's uh, personal data or personal information, I guess, would be huge because uh, for me, when I see something when I'm using an application and it gets money wrong or it gets, you know, um, I guess it gets personal information that I'm giving it wrong that to me removes any confidence uh, for that application to do anything correctly. Yeah, either of those, if your app does those wrong, that's those are like the two things that will make me instantly just delete my account. <laughs> Instant delete. If the app lets you, that's a whole nother topic. So, Sean, I just released some new open source tools. Yes, I have looked into and possibly will be using some of these open source tools this week. Oh, nice. So the the two tools I made are called Luminous and Drift. Luminous is a JavaScript light box. You're welcome, world. And Drift actually is 
pretty pretty novel. It allows you to do a zoom on hover kind of effect, similar to what you see on a lot of e-commerce sites like Amazon, Everlane, that sort of thing. So what was the inspiration behind these building these libraries? So these are actually made for Imagix. Basically, a lot of our customers are e-commerce, so we want to give them great ways to easily integrate this kind of functionality that you see widespread on the internet. So that was kind of kind of the reasoning behind it. But we also wanted to make sure that we were making something that's just generally useful, you know, in the in the open source tradition. Right. That makes total sense, especially since Imagex deals with images. You know, these two plugins deal with images. So I think it's probably a great way for them to showcase um, the value of their service. For sure. And it's it's kind of like my job is developer relations. So it's sort of like I help write the client libraries for, you know, Ruby and backend JavaScript and all those sorts of things, Swift, et cetera. So that piece of what I make sits between Imagex's image processing and developers who are using it. But then these open source tools are sort of the opposite. They sit between the developers using Imagex and their actual users on the web browser side. So it's kind of cool the code I'm making right now sits in both of those places. Right, yeah. No, I think that's, I think these two ideas are perfect use cases for that. Yeah, so they are uh, both written with no dependencies. Um, both of them combined, actually, Minified and GZIP are less than six kilobytes, uh, which I'm pretty proud of personally. And they are both actually written in ES6, which I would like to talk about a bit more in a minute. You mentioned that you were thinking about using one for a project. Which uh, which one was that? I'm planning on using Drift. So I've implemented actually that exact same thing uh, using a plugin called Magic Zoom on a site that I'm working on. Uh, but Magic Zoom... If I remember correctly, it was much larger than Drift, and it has a ton of features bundled that I don't need. So by kind of stripping that out and throwing Drift in, I'm you know slimming things down, and and I have more, I guess, more of a focused um, plugin for what I actually need that doesn't have a bunch of cruft in it. Nice. Well, you'll know where to uh, you'll know where to find me if you have bug reports. Uh, I got my plus ones and emojis already set up in Text Expander. All right. So I mentioned that these are made in ES6, and I think. Uh, I think we've put it off long enough, Sean. It's time that we had the chat. Mm. Yeah. So I think both of us tend to get asked a fair bit about ES6 in the very Slack groups and whatnot that we are members of. We, well, we even did an interview with uh, Mr. Cottrell, Jonathan Cottrell of Developer Team. He asked us straight up about ES6. Right. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I forgot about that. Um, so... Now that I've actually spent a bit more quality time with it, uh, I, I have some more thoughts. And uh, it sounds like you've been doing some more digging on it recently as well. So it seems like now's the time to talk about it. Let's just let's just talk about it, Paul. <laughs> this could be a very special <laughs> ES6 episode. That's the title. A special edition episode. <laughs> so what what do you like most about ES6? I think, you know, there's definitely... Some things I really like about it. The let and const syntax, I think, are both great. Um, you know, having block scoping for variables and then, of course, constants are just fantastic additions to the language that we've needed a solve for for a long time. And uh, parts of the import and export syntax are really fantastic as well. I, um, I think some of it's kind of convoluted with the way things have to be named and the default exports and that sort of thing. But overall, I think it's, it's definitely uh, an improvement for sure. Definitely. I, I am a big fan of let and const as well. Um, I really like the const is very specific. It is exactly what it is, right? You're not repurposing var and using other 
um, conventions to kind of communicate that it's a constant. You use constant and that's a, that is what it is. Um, and I also like that it throws errors if you try to change that constant as it should, right? Yeah, true constant support in JavaScript is is pretty massive because, you know, in the past you could always just use var something in all caps with underscores equals whatever. But then that doesn't provide any of the safety or actual syntax appropriateness of a, of a true constant. So th- that's that's definitely something JavaScript has needed for a long time, and it's really great to see. And then let, like I said, the block-level scoping is also fantastic because of the ambiguity of, of var. Yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, I even watched a few videos recently about let, and um, I I was like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, that's exactly what I would expect let to be doing. Right, and let is kind of like one of those things where when you first start learning JavaScript, that's how you would expect it to just work. Right. But it hasn't until now, and it's very cool that it does. Actually, let and const are two things that I would really love to see ported over to CoffeeScript because I know that's kind of one one of the big complaints around CoffeeScript is that variable scoping is can be a little bit opaque, um, and and it's easy to overwrite something in the wrong scope or use a variable twice when you don't mean to that sort of thing. Um, so I think those are d- d- a drastic improvement over CoffeeScript. What about you? What are your favorite things about it well like i mentioned let and const i was i mean you know i'm really enjoying import and export seemed fine to me i didn't really have any issues with them either um but you know coming from a copy script background there wasn't a whole lot that i looked at and i was like man man i really wish that copy script had that in fact there was there was a lot of stuff that i looked at and and i thought to myself well you know copy script already has this so i don't really see a need to switch sides you know if if i were coming from a straight up javascript background i could totally see the benefits but a lot of it to me just kind of seemed like yeah okay that's cool yeah a lot of the things in es6 if you've been using coffee for a while kind of feel like you know welcome to 2011 It, it it's it feels very very late and very in a lot of cases poorly implemented for example the the fat arrow syntax in es6 um is kind of weird syntax compared to CoffeeScript and kind of internally inconsistent as well with for example when you need parentheses versus don't need parentheses that sort of thing and also the fact that it only provides bound functions so you can't use there's no form of arrow syntax for an unbound function which is kind of a strange omission really because really when you think about it most JavaScript functions you don't care about binding for anybody who doesn't understand what that means, when I talk about binding um, in JavaScript, the context of the keyword this is very flexible. So depending on how and where something gets called, this can change. So bound functions mean that this will always be the same this that it was when you defined the function. It can't change no matter where it's called from. Right, whereas CoffeeScript gives you an option to specify which which this you want to refer to. Right. So you can use either the the fat arrow syntax for a bound function or just a skinny arrow syntax for an unbound function in CoffeeScript. Um, another thing that feels a little bit weird to me is the template strings with backticks. Definitely something that JavaScript, the language, needs, but the implementation feels a bit strange to me. Um, with the dollar sign curly brace syntax, uh, I think that the the hash curly brace syntax is a little bit easier to look at and, for me, easier to type, which could just be habit in CoffeeScript. And the backtick syntax is definitely fine, uh, but I kind of also like being able to use double quotes because that seems to be more consistent with other languages um, in terms of how they interpret different types of quotes. So Ruby, for example, will let you use single quotes for certain things and doubles for others. It's kind of one of those things where it's fine, but I'm not 
I'm not really blown away by it. It seems like almost a too little, too late kind of situation. Yeah, I, I actually feel the same way about the template strings. So when I first looked at it, I think I was going through the Learn ES 2015 Babel guide. And I first looked at it and I was like, wow, backtick seems kind of weird. Because like you said, you know, Ruby uses double quotes. Um, and I'm used to CoffeeScript using double quotes. And for me, when I see double quotes, it's just ingrained in my brain. Like, oh, this is this is probably going to be a string that is interpolating some variables. And in fact, I always use single quotes unless I'm doing that. Yep, same here. You know, I, I don't even, I can't remember the last time I used a backtick for anything. Typically, the only thing I use a backtick for is for denoting code blocks because I'm a big Markdown fan. So I write backticks everywhere when I'm talking about code. So that might actually be part of why I find it so weird that backticks are used that way in JavaScript now because I'm so used to writing backticks to, de to denote code that seeing them actually in code kind of throws me off. Yeah, I think that's probably what's happening with me too because I, I do that in Slack all day long. <laughs> Just backticking things all day long. So, you know, sending code snippets back and forth to other programmers. But like you said, you know, it's great that that's an option now. I think, it, like you said, it was something that was much needed for a long time. I, I think that's what it really comes down to for me. A lot of the additions to ES6 are good additions to JavaScript, but they feel a little bit off. It feels sort of half-baked to me in a way. There are things like symbols, which are kind of implemented oddly as well compared to, for example, Ruby symbols. And I guess they, they definitely do serve a different purpose than Ruby symbols, but just the way they're implemented is, is kind of strange. So if you want a unique identifier, you can call symbol, but it doesn't have any human representation other than the variable name that you assign to it. So there's just some some strange things like that, and also the spread operator. Um, that seems like a pretty major addition for something that wasn't that broken, specifically function prototype apply. It seems to me like there was just a lot of uh, kind of small dev ergonomic stuff that was added. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of those things can already be done with transpilers. So when you're using ES6, you're typically going to be using something like Babel, for instance, that transpiles it to ES5-compatible JavaScript or browser-compatible JavaScript or whatever environment you're writing for. And it feels like a lot for not necessarily a ton of gain compared to what was already out there. And there's also some really strange omissions. For example, right now in standard Babel... Um, unless you're using the stage zero, which is their most experimental version, then you actually don't get any bound instance methods. And that's something when you're writing classes, which ES6 does provide and are great, but bound bound instance methods are pretty important in JavaScript classes. Right. You know, I honestly, a lot of my biggest gripes with uh, modern JavaScript, we'll just say, is the tooling around that. Whether it's Babel, like you said, there's lots of... Uh, there's just lots of the small things that you kind of have to know or you kind of have to be privy to uh, to make it a good experience. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Modern JavaScript, as it were, feels a lot like CSS to me. You have to know dozens of magic tricks to make it tolerable, and then it's fine. But getting there is such a weird, difficult process. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where this all is in a year or two, and maybe it'll be significantly better. But as it stands right now, I, I think that the, the language itself and the tooling around it are both pretty immature and not, not the best. I'm using them, like I said, but I still think there's some pretty major problems. Another one for me that I just very, very deeply miss from CoffeeScript is comprehensions. Um, if you haven't worked with comprehensions before, go check that out. We'll get a link to this in the show notes so you can see how they work in coffee, but they're pretty much 
they're a very English way to expose some pretty complicated functionality. So as a quick example, it would be do thing, thing, for thing, of things. So you can have an array or an object and then express some kind of transformation on it just by typing out what is essentially an English sentence. I've been doing a lot of research and I'll probably keep doing research over the next few weeks, but you know, working for a consulting company, a lot of the code that I write gets turned over to other developers. And obviously I want to I want to, you know, keep up with the times, not saying that CoffeeScript is outdated by any means, but if the trend of developers that I'm sending code to, you know, if they're if they're comfortable with ES6, then that's something that I need to get comfortable with and uh, yeah, so I guess I'm just going to be doing some research and we can probably talk about it more in an upcoming episode, but I probably will end up using ESX shortly, not too long from now. All right, so earlier this week, we came across a pretty cool GitHub repo called Simplify JavaScript Jargon, and it is exactly what it says it is. It's a dictionary of JavaScript terms. For example, you would hear the word brunch and you would think of something that all San Franciscoans enjoy. But that's not the case. This says that brunch is a tool focusing on production of deployment-ready files from development files. Uh, so if, you know, if you're new to JavaScript or trying to update the information in your brain, this is a good place to go to uh, find definitions for any of these trendy words that you'll be seeing around. Yeah, even just kind of scrolling through this, as somebody who's written JavaScript for a really long time, I'm seeing a bunch of stuff that I didn't know about, and it's it's really cool, even just as a refresher. So, like, for example, virtual DOM. Everybody knows kind of what the virtual DOM is now with how popular React is. But it, this is really neat. You can get a one-sentence description of it at the top level, so a copy of the DOM in memory that the program can modify instead of directly interfacing with the real DOM to help speed up interactions. But then every single one of these you can actually click into, and then it gives you a couple paragraphs of description, which is extremely cool. Um, this is just on GitHub, so it's, you know, it's in a nice markdown pretty interface. And I love this. This is so cool. I think the most useful feature for me, honestly, is when you click on the title, it takes you to a short description of the library that you clicked on. So a lot of marketing sites that I see are kind of hard to reason about quickly. It's kind of hard to find, you know, the sales pitch or a sales pitch that makes sense even. So, for example, when I clicked on virtual DOM, it brings me to a paragraph that says virtual DOM is a concept closely associated with React that holds a lightweight abstract copy of the DOM in memory and doesn't re-render the elements until the precise moment they are needed. I mean, that says exactly what it is, right? And I didn't have to scroll around on a website uh, or scroll around through docs to, to figure that out. Yeah, and every one of these that I've clicked on, I've clicked on a bunch of them now, and they are all really terse and well-written. They say just what they need to and nothing more. And they are just kind of kind of the best. This is a really, really good resource. I'm super glad you found this. So earlier I mentioned uh, with ES6 how much work it takes to get things set up to build a project. And that's not to blame ES6 just straight up. I mean, most of the time when you're using ES6, you're using something like React or Webpack or Browserify or something like that. There's just a lot to... That has to get put into that to get, get even like a simple prototype project running, right? And recently... Um, Eric Clemens wrote a pretty good article on Medium called JavaScript Fatigue. And to summarize, he was talking with a friend and, you know, he's saying, how is it going? And Eric's just saying, I'm really just kind of burnt out by all this JavaScript stuff. It seems really complicated. It seems like there's there's so much stuff you have to know to even get something simple set up. And in response to that, um, 
I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. Uh, I know he's a developer at Facebook, uh, but I do not know French. Uh, so I'm just going to give it my best shot. Uh, V-U-X, V-J-E-U-X um, is how he spells his alias. Um, but he, he wrote a blog post challenging the JavaScript community to come up with a better solution for quick prototyping. And I can get a link on Twitter, but there, there are basically a lot of responses to this. Uh, he tweeted it and tweeted a link to the blog post. And a lot of people kind of took that upon themselves to create tools. And one of them I thought was really cool was Evan Yu, the creator of Vue.js, which is something we've talked a lot about here. Uh, he actually put together a tool called Vue CLI. And Vue CLI is really simple. If you want to get a basic Vue app up and running, you just type Vue CLI um, and then you give it a name and it sets up Browserify or uh, Webpack, whichever one you want to use. It sets all that up for you. So it generates scaffolds, a basic setup, and you're ready to roll in seconds. Nice. That's pretty cool. Have you actually used this? I've been wanting to learn more about this stuff anyway, uh, ES6 and Webpack and all that. Uh, and uh, somebody that I follow on Twitter, Adam Simpson, he actually, uh, his blog, the back end is WordPress API, and then he wrote a React front end for it uh, that just consumes the API. And so I wanted to do something similar, but with Vue and ES6. And I actually used uh, Vue CLI to scaffold the base project for that. Yeah, but I thought it was pretty cool that, you know, people are taking this upon themselves to build tools uh, and, you know, trying to help each other out. I think that's the coolest thing about all of this in the JavaScript community is that people really do want to help each other out. So, yeah, we've talked about that a lot, the, the whole aspect of community and people helping other people. And it, it's always really cool to see that sort of thing. Um, I think one of the most amazing things about this for me is just how prolific Evan is with Vue.js. Yeah, it's pretty wild. If you even just go to the Vue.js repo and read through the issues, it, I don't know, it boggles my mind. I had tweeted at him once and asked how you know he's so productive, and he said that he's borderline obsessive <laughs> over it. Uh, I think he said something along the lines of, you know, OCD helps. But um, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild how productive he is. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, I, I mean, in terms of something that attracts me to a project, like somebody maintaining it that is that passionate about making the coolest thing they can make, that's pretty high up there on the list. Yeah, it seems like Vue has a definite um, problem that it wants to solve. It's outlined very well. So in terms of him, you know, accepting pull requests or rejecting pull requests and working on issues, it's, you know, he has it all mapped out. And so he can just go and do what needs to be done. Yeah, it's just incredibly cool to see one person. And I mean, I know there's other contributors, but to see one person as the face of a project that size, putting out as much work as a lot of projects that are significantly larger, it's just, it's kind of incredible and very inspiring for sure. As always, our thanks for listening to Does Not Compute. Today's sponsor was Hired, which you should definitely check out. It's free, it's awesome, and it's one of the best, easiest ways to land a new development or design job. Remember, if you sign up at Hired.com slash Does Not Compute, you will get a $4,000 thank you bonus when you get your new job through them. They've got great jobs in Toronto, Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, San Francisco, London, and a bunch of other awesome cities, so make sure to check them out today. If you enjoy the show and haven't rated or reviewed us on iTunes yet, please consider taking a minute to do that. It's one of the best things you can do to help support us.